0: Welcome into Al Have You Know. This is your co host, David Drew Gleaver, Rice Business Class of 2012. This is a special episode. Before we get rocking here, we have a couple of folks I'd like to introduce. It does take a team to make all this stuff happen. So I'd like to introduce Tim Okabayashi, Class of 2005. And we also have Kyle Rowland on as well. Tim, do you want to say hello? Hey, David. Really excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Tim, also you're a member of an alumni association as well. So um, as we've been working together for almost a year now, what is it that you're excited about with this podcast and and what we're creating here? Uh, Dave, we're really excited to bring these audible stories from alumni to help engage with the broader Rice MBA community. Awesome. And Kyle, we want to hear from you as well. Kyle is the assistant director of alumni relations. Kyle, you wanna share a little bit about what you're excited about with, I'll have you know.
1: Sure, Uh, so my role is generally regional programming outside of Houston, and I'm always looking for ways to engage folks beyond just having events. So I've really enjoyed um, listening to the really great episodes that y'all have been recording, as well as interacting with folks um, on the back and on the front end, just helping to engage a greater population.
0: Yeah, and I think engagement is really key here. And so as we're moving forward towards the alumni reunion getting together and we want to see people engage a lot more. And so uh, we're running a special drawing and Kyle, you want to share a little bit more about how we're structuring the drawing and how people can uh, cash in on the swag. Heck
1: yeah, uh, we are running a drawing. So uh, for those of you who are listening to us, uh, we'd love if you would leave a comment or review on Apple podcasts anytime between March 1st and March 15th. Um, between anyone who's left a comment, uh, we're going to go ahead and select two winners to win a swag package that our office will send to you as a thanks for listening. There's some more details in the show notes. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but definitely check them out and go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. And as most folks know, we're creating a platform here. We're covering lots of business management topics, I'm trying to make this more and more relevant to everyone. So, leaving the comments there and subscribing was tremendously helpful to us to make this more relevant to the broader rice business ecosystem and beyond. So Tim, Kyle, thank you so much for chiming in here. Again, thank you in advance for leaving some comments and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, and without further ado, on to the show.
2: Today on I'll Have You Know.
3: When that bolt of lightning and inspiration strikes we want to make sure they know i got to go do my market segmentation and customer development they know exactly what to do and it's like riding a bike because they have built that muscle memory before and it just comes naturally
2: kyle judah and sophie randolph both share a passion for entrepreneurship kyle as the new executive director at the lily lab sophie as a first year full-time mba who entered rice business already an entrepreneur they talk about programming at Lilly during a pandemic. What drew them to the Rice ecosystem? And where does Houston sit on the startup map for the future? Joining us today on I'll Have You Know, Kyle Judah, the executive director for the Lou Idea Lab for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and also Sophie Randolph, a Rice business student who will graduate in 2022. Welcome both of you to the program.
3: Thanks so much for having
4: me. Yeah, glad to be here.
2: Well first of all I want to I want to start with Kyle. You are you are new to Rice and uh the Lily Lab uh, coming on as executive director in August. What an interesting time to start this job. What has it been like and, and why Rice?
3: Uh it's it's a great question and I think um now more than ever uh higher ed institutions and entrepreneurs need more support. COVID has kind of thrown the business development and funding ecosystems and resources really upside down these last 10 or 12 months now. And uh, as a university, as the number one ranked university in entrepreneurship in the country, as, as Rice Business is, you know, we have a responsibility to support and encourage entrepreneurs like Sophie and like so many of our students and our alums and support them at each stage of their journey from kind of curiously dipping their toe in the pool of entrepreneurship and exploring it in the classroom or outside the classroom, whether it's about kind of helping to connect them to personalized mentors, equity-free funding. Our responsibility as a university is to be there to believe in them and support them before anybody else in their life or anybody else in their market is going to be willing to. And and so it's an exciting time. We have an opportunity to build something incredibly unique and incredibly special with respect to a university entrepreneurship ecosystem and an ecosystem of entrepreneurs and innovators in Houston and in Texas relative to anywhere else. I spent most of my career out in the Northeast and in the Boston ecosystem the last three years before joining up at Rice in in August in the Boulder-Denver ecosystem in Colorado. And each of these different communities are unique and special and have competitive advantages relative to everywhere else. What I found so attractive and appealing about the opportunity at Rice was to kind of build on the foundation that the team at Lilly has has created over the last five years and help write the next chapter of the future for entrepreneurship at Rice and entrepreneurship in Houston, but do so in a way that is authentic to the DNA of our community on and off campus. and And the thing I think that that I'm most excited about is we have a much more diverse student base at Rice, and obviously a much more diverse community in Houston than Boston, than New York, than certainly the Bay Area, and absolutely certainly more than Boulder. And, and we have the opportunity to create a much more inclusive strain of entrepreneurship and a more diverse strain of entrepreneurship at Rice and at Houston than I think anywhere, anywhere else, while at the same time building off of the historical centers of excellence for Rice and for Houston and healthcare and energy and space and all the areas that are the grand challenges for humanity for the next couple of decades, Rice has been there. And we have the infrastructure both on and off campus to support and encourage that next generation of entrepreneurs to get started and get started while they're at Rice.
2: Sophie, you were an entrepreneur as you as you really entered the program what has it been like um, at your first fall and getting involved um, with the lab? What what are some of the things you've done and experiences you've had?
4: So from the get-go, one of my goals was to continue working on my business while in school, especially your first semester. It's loaded with your core classes and it's easy and justifiable to just focus on that. But I always had in the back of my head, like, okay, the amount of time that my peers are spending recruiting, that's the time that I want to spend building my own thing, even though it feels less urgent, say, than the external deadlines of recruiting. One huge thing that right out the gate, I got involved with the venture development uh, series, which was a three-part series for folks who either had an idea and wanted to play with it some with a bit of structure, or if you didn't have an idea and just wanted to exercise those muscles, something Lily Lab has done a great job of is kind of feeding you an idea to play with. So you could work that muscle. Um, But I I came in with an idea and I remember before the very first one, just sitting on the couch and being like, I, I just spent six hours on zoom. Like (laughs) I don't want to go. And going just meant logging into a thing, but I still, I didn't want to go, and I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm just gonna get on it for at least five minutes, and it was, and it was amazing. It was the best virtual programming, um, of of any of the like extracurricular virtual adventures I've delved into. Lily's definitely thinking they're entrepreneurs. They're doing cool things in a new environment. They're they're in a really good spot to pull off um, innovative ways to deliver. So. So the venture development series was the, was the very first taste of Lily I got, and it has kept kind of my creative juices flowing with uh, my business idea. And then I also took part in um, a six week program on customer research that was about two and a half hours per week uh, structured, and that was kind of the equivalent of adding on another class, which is a little crazy, but. It, it's helped push me forward. And that set me up to be in a position where uh, Rice and Lily Lab just launched the Rice Experiment Fund, where student founders or folks with an idea who want to run an experiment and either get some market validation or just get to that next step in their experiment can apply for a grant. And I pitched Kyle and I was granted $500 to do some uh, A-B testing about which beachhead market I should go after. So once finals wrap up next week, I'll be really diving into that and taking advantage of uh, the opportunity for some for some play money to further, further my idea in that way.
2: Can you talk a little bit about uh, your company, Crescendo Management, what you do, what you've learned so far and where you're trying to take it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So Crescendo Management started... A couple years ago, my boyfriend was launching his music career as a solo artist for the first time. He's been gigging for a decade in various bands and out in the Bay Area, he was in a duo, but he was back to Texas and hadn't been playing music here in his name ever. And he was, you know, he had the music part down, but was pretty caught up in how to market himself or how to get gigs and um putting himself out there was not that fun for him. (laughs) And (laughs) I wanted to see him succeed. And it started in that way where I took on uh, some of the, the marketing and management elements and was just doing it kind of for fun to explore. I was working at a startup full time. I definitely had that like entrepreneurial spirit and this was a new angle to apply it. And then one of his Buddies called him. I was like, "Hey, I I see you've been doing well gigging in Texas. Like, can you help hook me up with some gigs?" And he was like, "Oh, you need Sophie." And I was like, "Oh, okay. I do this now. Got it." Uh, and that's that's part of how it started. Um, and grew from there. Whether it's doing websites or booking for for other artists, that was kind of the core of what I was up to for for four core clients for a while there. And then when COVID came around, um, music in person came to a halt. And one of the first things we did when live streams started to happen, you could see just a stark contrast in audio quality from folks. So we set out to figure out, okay, how do you do a high quality live stream through Facebook and like using predominantly free tools? And turns out it's If you know what to do, it's it's not rocket science. So I put together a series of blog posts on that. And that was kind of the first content of mine that spread beyond my immediate circle. And that was exciting to see. And and at the same time, I started thinking more broadly about what it was I liked doing with my clients. And it it came down to the individuals who are super passionate about something, whether it's making music or Making hats, but didn't necessarily have the business mind to grow that idea as well as they could. Um, filling in those knowledge gaps, so it, so it kind of evolved into small business consulting. From there, and a couple of clients right now are a hat shop and a farm, and that's been um, a great experience to help people who are creating something and like trying to make their life passion into something more than a hobby is is exciting to be part of and really energizing. And then as far as what I've learned, working and doing things manually as services, I think is the best way to discover the recurring problems. And that's when you get the ideas for what can scale, whether it's an app or a specialized service. If you're doing it manually and you feel the pain yourself and you become your own potential future customer, that's where good ideas come from problems, not from like, oh, that'd be cool. No, you need to solve a pain point. So, so that's uh one of the ideas I'm working on now would be to intermediate payment between venues and musicians to simplify tax filing. It's not like tax software, it's not the sexiest thing on the planet, but I know that there's pain there and it has um an opportunity to grow in a variety of different directions. So that's uh the software side of my entrepreneurial adventure is, is headed in that direction right now
3: if if i can just build on that like i yeah you're singing my song i i love hearing that and and it's so timely because you know doordash went public earlier this week and i saw one of the the early co-founders who's now a venture capitalist kind of sharing some of their some of their lessons and learnings from the early days and one of the things he said was exactly what you just repeated, which is you live in the problem and you do the messy manual work in the early days because that helps you figure out where are the opportunities to automate and scale through software and where are the opportunities that you still have to have a manual touch so that you ultimately create a, a great user, a great customer experience for folks and they kind of keep coming back time and time again. So whether you're doing, you know, Distributed delivery for food and everything else, or software for musicians, living in the problem is the best place to start.
4: Absolutely. That's
2: some good advice. Kyle, you started you know during an interesting time and, and you were saying that you've hardly even been to the physical lab. What kind of challenges has it presented in continuing the programs and the offerings? and maybe what have you learned in the process?
3: Yeah, that's that I think is the thing that kept our team awake at night um after I joined but before the the semester started because the reality is everything is virtual or or most of it is virtual classes, courses, um club meetings, you name it. And I think what we wanted to make sure was that we weren't just piling, you know, more zoom lectures on top of more zoom lectures on top of more zoom lectures that we had to create interesting and unique ways to make sure that our events our workshops our speaker series were interesting and engaging and that they offered students and faculty and research staff or alums at rice opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have in the classroom and so as sophie mentioned we we've run this venture development workshop series which is kind of like entrepreneurship 101. What should you be doing on day one from ideation to customer development and and, um, so on and so forth? And I think the opportunity for us was, how do we make something that is really messy, ugly legwork at the front end of creating a new venture? How do you make that fun and interesting and engaging when it is being delivered over uh, o- over Zoom, and and you don't get that same energy and same kind of density of the entrepreneurial community um, in, in the Lily space. And I think we were rightly worried about that. I think what the semester has shown us is that now more than ever, people are looking for community, they're aching for community, and, mm-hmm. and they're desperately seeking ways to connect with the other group of kind of You know, crazies who have raised their hand and jumped off the cliff and said, I want to go down this nonlinear, winding, messy path of figuring out how to be an entrepreneur and how to be an innovator. We've seen the numbers jump up dramatically um, in, in terms of the number of students, the number of first year MBAs, the number of freshmen and undergraduate students who are coming and attending because it is that much easier. They don't have to build in time to Schlepp to the other side of campus or come from off campus to to campus or not. The other thing is that it's really given us an opportunity to engage an entrepreneurial community that is global in nature. When everybody's on Zoom 24-7, that means we can leverage alums or entrepreneurs from Boston, from Chicago, from Austin, from the Bay Area, LA, from Singapore and London and everywhere in between and I think that's a really unique thing that you just can't get when you're doing everything in person. Nobody's going to hop on a plane and come over from the UK for an hour and a half, you know, speaker series, right? But this has given us the opportunity to have uh, Eric Yuan, who's the founder and CEO of Zoom, actually do a fireside chat with uh, with Dr. Yale Hochberg, who's who's my boss and the head of the entrepreneurship department at Rice, and that otherwise never would have happened. And so I think we've tried to be entrepreneurial. We've tried to be creative. And we've tried to make sure that through our different events and our different programs, it's not just kind of a rinse and repeat that we're, you know, finding different and interesting ways to engage students to make sure that the education and the knowledge transfer that's happening is, is tactical, and that students are being given time to actually learn it and apply it in real time and i think that's a big part of our philosophy of how entrepreneurship has to be taught on a college campus theory alone is never going to be enough and, and theory alone doesn't account for the harsh reality sometimes of trying to do customer development when you can't get in front of your customers and all the various and sundry parts of, of this experience but if you focus it on entrepreneurship being taught by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, that I think helps make sure that this isn't something that stays purely academic, but that it is truly centered on, you know, what is the value and what is the experience that we can deliver for for our customers who who are student founders just like Sophie.
2: Question for both of you, sort of generally speaking about entrepreneurship, those who are at Rice and even and even beyond. Every business has been affected by COVID in, in one way or another, and we've seen businesses fold. There's been so much talk about pivoting and being nimble. Do you think that more people are fearful of becoming an entrepreneur after seeing what's happened? Or has there been such a disruption in every person's life that it's given them an opportunity to step back and say, well, wait a minute, um, where am I in my you know, life and path and journey? And maybe I want to take a risk right now.
4: I'll start. I th- think i'm an optimist so that definitely colors my answer but i've seen a lot of my peers and and other folks just overall reevaluating what's matters to them mm-hmm. uh and in that entrepreneurship can become more appealing it's also there's definitely some uh like availability bias in that I think that the makeup of the Rice MBA classes is shifting more and more towards entrepreneurship as we keep hold of that number one ranking. So um, and my my boyfriend's Rice MBA class of 2020. So talking to him, he's like, yeah, there are probably two or three people in my class who are going to do their own thing when they graduated. Whereas for my class, like I know that higher, that number, even as a percentage feels a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you also get a bunch of folks who are like, yeah, I want to do something like semi-traditional consulting i-banking yada yada for 2 to 3 years and then maybe acquire a company and run it. So there there's all different types of entrepreneurs and I think um the folks who want to start their own thing that's definitely growing in numbers at Rice and I think COVID I think COVID makes people reassess their priorities so they either double down in one direction or the other. If they're like, oh, I really like this work from home, build my own schedule, like hustle to the beat of my own drum thing, um, you're going to get those folks. uh, But I think a lot of people never got to try that because they went into a nine to five. But now that you work from home, even if it's for someone else, you start to get a sense of what it's like to have more full control of how your time's spent.
3: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. Um, color color me an optimist too, but I think there's no there's been no better time in history to try and be an entrepreneur uh, than now. There's more certainly more capital and funding available than at any time in history, both for folks who are going to pursue the venture capital funding path and and for those who are. Um, pursuing a bootstrap capital pack um, and, and new funding sources, new opportunities, and new paths to market are are kind of being created and explored now more than ever. I, I agree with Sophia. I think it it has forced people to radically reevaluate their priorities in life, what their passions are, and and I think um, unfortunately has shown that you know life can be really short, and and if you're truly passionate about something and it's the last thing you're thinking about at night when you're laying awake in bed and the first thing you're thinking about when you get out of bed in the morning there there really is no better time and no better flexibility than than now to start down that path i mean if you think back to the last major kind of macro disruption of the global financial crisis the companies that we're seeing today going public DoorDash and Airbnb Stripe yeah. and so many others those got started in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. That's when I started my my company as well in in my prior life as a as a founder before getting into academia. And um and yeah, there are certainly more challenges. But um but just because there's instability economically and in a lot of other ways going on right now, doesn't mean that it's a bad time to start a company. In fact, I think it, it shows that there's. More opportunities and more industries and more customer segments that are ripe for innovation and disruption than ever before.
2: you talked about rice's ranking and um, they are they are known internationally for entrepreneurship. Why is that? What have you both seen so far? You're both relatively new uh, to rice. So what have you seen so far that you think contributes to that ranking and and um dominance that they that they have? And it looks like it's going to continue as they're growing the program.
3: Yeah, I think you know. So uh, I'm obviously heavily biased, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, with with Lily kind of being the the home and center for entrepreneurship for the Rice campus, we have an opportunity. While a lot of our peer universities and a lot of other universities in general are cutting budget and cutting programs and cutting back in a lot of different ways, we're growing. I mean, the the MBA class that Sophie's a part of is close to fully one third larger than the historical average. And and as she mentioned, I think the makeup and the mindset of that class is shifting quite radically from past years to being more entrepreneurial. The university is investing increasingly in entrepreneurship technology transfer and commercialization in a lot of different ways because if we can invest now when others are cutting, boy, are we going to be in a in a really, you know, far and away um advantageous position in a couple of years' time when there is a a reversion to normal, you know, budget constraints, normal budgetary opportunities and that sort of thing. The biggest thing that I've seen, honestly, and I've spent five years at MIT working in their Center for Entrepreneurship and their uh, innovation ecosystem, three years at, at CU Boulder doing much the same in the engineering college. The biggest difference for me at Rice is the the faculty that are teaching entrepreneurship have been entrepreneurs themselves. Mm-hmm. They haven't just studied what other people have done. They haven't just read the books and the research. They've actually lived it and breathed it. And that makes a world of difference because again, um, entrepreneurship is not just an academic research pursuit. And the the realities that you face as a founder in this world, um, you you get a lot of scar tissue and you learn a lot of hard lessons when you try and take what looks like a beautiful business Uh, um, you know, in a, in a business plan document and try and make it a reality and will it into existence. Um, but those who have been there kind of know some of those life hacks, tips, tricks, how do you run a good fundraising process? How do you balance your mental health as an entrepreneur so that you don't burn out you don't kind of prematurely, uh, have to wind up your venture because you just don't have the time, energy or, or, or support anymore for it. And so to me, I think that's the biggest the biggest differentiator for, for Rice versus any other university out there is we've been there, we've started, we've sold companies. Some have taken them public. We've been investing in and advising in companies for, I think, something like cumulatively 80 years across our entrepreneurship faculty. And so um, that makes a world of difference versus just folks who have watched other people play the game on the field.
4: And you see that in the courses that are offered. It's not a lecture on entrepreneurial best practices or how to build a business plan. Like One of the courses I'll be taking in the spring is the new enterprise where uh, folks can come in and pitch a problem space or there's kind of a menu of problem spaces to choose from. And you have to go through the process of figuring out who the customer is, who the target customer would be, what kind of product you might launch to solve that problem. But it's very much action-oriented and an applied learning experience. You don't you don't get to sit back and consume it. There's curriculum and structure to support it, but you're you're forced into action to become an entrepreneur. And I think that's uh, big, not only for folks like myself who are kind of all in on this path while while doing their MBA, but folks who three five years down the line might want to. Come out of consulting and into something more entrepreneurial, they've exercised that muscle before. They're not doing it for the first time. They're doing it for the first time for real. And that's something um, that I try to convey to my peers who are like, oh, like, do I have to have an idea to do this? Like, I don't know. Like, I like the idea of entrepreneurship, but I don't know how it fits into my life. I'm like, that's okay. Just do it. First of all, you're at the number one ranked entrepreneurship school. You got to go take an entrepreneurship class. And number two, like, whether you're starting a new department in an existing company or launching a new project or a new arm of, of a super existing business, or you're going into energy and they're going to have to figure out how to stay relevant when all the oil's gone, uh, you're, you're going <laughs> to need an entrepreneurial mindset wherever you go. And and I think Rice does a good job of trying to convey the relevance of entrepreneurship across segments while also doubling down and committing to founders and the money that they put behind it is ridiculous. Like I I toured other schools and my my key takeaway was that there's a lot of places talking about entrepreneurship and there's a handful of places doing entrepreneurship. And I couldn't, I did not feel as confident that anyone was doing entrepreneurship the way Rice was doing it. And then uh, another kind of like elephant in the room, if if you're going to be an entrepreneur, your salary is who knows what for the first couple of years. And, and Rice has a huge financial aid program, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or not, it's among the most generous for financial aid for full-time MBAs. And for me, a consideration of what kind of scholarship I could get coming to school was going to make or break how much I could commit to entrepreneurship um, confidently. So that uh, like you can Scream entrepreneurship from the rooftops, but if you're paying full price for an MBA, <laughs> it's gonna be rough. <laughs> like so, so, they so they come they come and they back that up with money, not only in in the resources for founders, but the way they approach um, making an MBA financially accessible, uh, regardless of your goals.
3: That's our our philosophy, and that's our value set at at Lilly, because you know one is we have to make sure that we're teaching people to fish, not helping them catch a fish, right? Which means, to Toby's point, making sure that the students who come through our classes or our co-curriculars are leaving with both that entrepreneurial mindset and that kind of Batman tool belt skill set of of what do you do when? How do you do customer development? How do you go and raise venture fin- financing? How do you test pricing and business models? And all these elements, because the reality is, as much as we want an MBA to have four shots on goal one each semester of building that muscle memory and 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 um, and experimenting and giving it a shot the reality is many might not be in the right financial position in their lives many might not be in the right um point in their in their entrepreneurial journey of knowing what's the right problem that kind of fits their passion areas and the need for the market and that might only come three years five years 10 20 years after they graduate but when that bolt of lightning and inspiration strikes, we want to make sure they know, I got to go do my market segmentation and customer development. They know exactly what to do. And it's like riding a bike because they've built that muscle memory before. And it just comes naturally. And, and knowing that they can still come back to Rice and come back to Lily and tap into our resources and our community um, to support alumni entrepreneurs as well. All All of our workshops are open to alums as well. And we have this phenomenal Rice Alumni Entrepreneurs and Innovators Group, which is now around 250 some odd alum entrepreneurs that have roundtables around being a CEO or ideating or acquiring a business or selling your business so that you don't have to go down this crazy stressful journey alone and in a vacuum. You can have a community of peers that are dealing with a lot of the same sort of challenges at a lot of the same sort of times, even though they might be working in radically different industries and sectors, but that you have a peer group to go through this journey with that can help you along the way, that can kind of have that lateral learning and sharing of knowledge and lesson and experiences across from founder to founder and venture to venture. And that's incredibly powerful. And that's how you build a real community and and a real flywheel for entrepreneurship. Um, happening on the campus, where then people are willing to come back and give back of their time and energy when they're an alum, to help mentor Sophie, some of her classmates, the MBAs in four, five, six years time. So we have to have an a interconnected set of programs um, that ultimately allow people to cross that graduation stage and say, "Man, Lily and entrepreneurship was a, a core element of my experience at Rice and." I'm going to carve out an hour a month to hop on a Zoom or hop on a phone or swing by campus and give a guest lecture or mentor a student entrepreneur who's going through exactly what I was a couple of years ago.
2: We've seen a lot of major corporations uh, essentially develop entrepreneurial arms or VC arms for development. Where do you see that going? And is that a great opportunity for maybe a student who says, I don't know about being a startup founder all on my own, but I do have this entrepreneurial mindset that I feel like I could help the existing company that I work for.
3: Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, I think we're seeing more and more of that activity going on than ever. Certainly, um, almost every major technology company in every industry has a corporate venture or corporate innovation arm at at this point. That's kind of been certainly a trend over the last kind of 10, 10 years or so. And what we're hearing from those folks for recruiting and career development is they are all too aware that the growth opportunities for their business are not going to come from the same areas that it always has. It's going to come from growing the pie, not getting a larger slice of the existing pie that they're eating. And that happens through innovation inside of a big company. And and that entrepreneurial mindset, that skill set is equally as valuable. For, a Google, Facebook, Twitter, now HP, that they're going to be in in Houston. So many companies actively need to bring in that entrepreneurial DNA from the outside, because especially if they're a legacy technology company, a lot of that DNA doesn't exist in in the company as it as it's constructed today, and and they know that they need to kind of constantly refresh that talent pipeline and that entrepreneurial DNA stock by recruiting from places like Rice and, and students like Sophie.
4: Absolutely. I think uh, some of my peers didn't quite realize how much of a, a thing that was, the intrapreneurship. And I remember, um, I can't remember if it was over the summer or during the first week when we were doing some like career development office orientation stuff. And I was talking to this one woman who comes from an energy background, is interested in that, but she'd done one of the many personality tests they have us take. And it, it kind of revealed that entrepreneurship was one of her top things. And she was having kind of this identity crisis of like, oh my God, like I've never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. But now that I think about that more, like, yeah, that is really exciting to me. But how do those two go to together? And I mentioned to her that that um, a lot of the big energy companies have Internal funding and branches that do exploration of new ideas, and she was just like that spoke to her on a whole different level than anything else she'd been thinking about. And and Rice um, definitely sets folks up to take on those positions upon graduation.
2: Let's talk a little bit about beyond the hedges of Rice. It's situated in the the nation's fourth largest city. Uh, We know that there are um, efforts to um give entrepreneurs more opportunities even at places like the ION and in different partnerships where do you see Houston as a city going i've gotten the impression that um some of the leadership within the city feels like we're a little bit behind in in that in in those efforts but there's a tremendous focus on changing that
3: yeah absolutely i've been blown away by the community that exists beyond the hedges um Not only how welcoming they've been to an outsider like me, um, but how genuinely curious they are about what makes an innovation ecosystem great and supportive. And the most exciting thing for me is they're not looking to copy and paste what worked in Boston or what worked in the Bay Area, because there never will be another Bay Area. Like, let's just be honest. If Houston was trying to be the Bay Area now, <laughs> it would be a massive failure. I mean, Bay Area's got a 50-year head start on doing what they do. And
4: everybody's leaving.
3: And and everybody's leaving and coming to places like Houston <laughs> and Texas. But I think they've been really diligent at looking at what worked in Boston, what works in Boulder, what works in LA or the Bay Area or Portland, Oregon, or or Nashville and these emerging innovation ecosystems. And my my former boss at MIT, uh, an incredibly brilliant woman named Fiona Murray, her whole body of research is around innovation ecosystems, and I am a true believer. Uh, but she talks about kind of there there needs to be these five groups of stakeholders in any innovation ecosystem that all have to be working together, playing for the name of the on the front of the jersey being Houston instead of, uh, you know, Chevron or Rice or wherever. And and those five groups are essentially uh, venture capitalists and and funders of innovators, an entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem, universities and academia that are a talent and and, um, technology pipeline out into the the world, big companies that can be both an incubator of talent, a customer for those entrepreneurs and startups, as well as eventually an acquirer of them, uh, and supportive local government um, so that you get rid of things like Non compete agreements, which are horrendously anti innovation and suppress new startup creation to an enormous extent. Um, hi, Massachusetts. I'm talking about you uh, on that one. Um, you, you know, and, and so I believe that Houston has all the right ingredients. We really do. What we have to do, and, and what I've been incredibly excited by, is that I see folks like, Blair Guru over at Mercury Fund and Barbara Berger at Chevron and a number of other folks saying, great, let's figure out what makes Houston great and what are our competitive advantages. Let's not try and be everything to everybody because an ecosystem can't do that. But how can we be leveraging Texas Medical Center and Memorial Houston? How can we be the place for med devices, for computational biology and therapeutics better than anywhere else. Boston's got life sciences and biotech kind of pretty well locked down. Great. Good for them. There are a lot of other areas in healthcare that are in desperate need of innovation and improvement for the benefit of society. And And I'm encouraged because we're playing our own game and we're creating um, something that's unique to Houston and authentic to Houston rather than trying to say, oh let's just do what Silicon Valley did. Oh Let's just do what LA did. Like figuring out what your unique value proposition is, what your unique differentiators are as an innovation ecosystem and doubling down there and, and really betting on the builders. Um, that's what I gets me so fired up about what I see going on at Houston and quite frankly was a big part of the draw to to leave a, an incredible ecosystem like Boulder and Denver and, and come on down there and help help be a part and help Rice be a part of, of writing that next chapter.
2: And Sophie, if you can speak to that and especially I think with your uh, startup, um, do you feel being in in sort of the music world is a disadvantage being in a city like Houston as opposed to a nashville or or the West coast?
4: yeah, so uh, what what you might not know is I moved to Houston directly from San Francisco, where I had been for two years, and before that, I had spent most of my life in Massachusetts. So when I came to Houston, I moved with the company I'd been working for in the Bay Area. There's a company called Zola and making booking software for tours and activities. And I was one of their, I think I was their last hire in the San Francisco office. And over time, that office just shrunk and shrunk. And we built our Houston office more and more because it just is unjustifiably expensive uh, to, to build a company in the Bay Area. And we had such good. Luck's the wrong word, but it was successful building out a talented team in Houston that it just made sense to grow there. And um I reached a point where I felt like I was kind of done with the Bay Area, but not done with this company. And I asked my boss if I could move to Houston. And he was like, Yes, absolutely. Like <laughs> that's I, I didn't think I could ask you to, but if you want to <laughs> go, like, go. And I moved a couple months later. Um to Houston, by myself, uh, not really knowing what to expect, I'd visited enough to know that i'd I'd like it, but wasn't sure that I'd love it and figured if I didn't love it like i would I would go on to my next adventure somewhere else. But something I did when I very first got here was I wanted to figure out what the entrepreneurship and startup ecosystem was in Houston because there were so many meetups and events that I could go to in San Francisco. And, and that's how I'd met a lot of interesting people. And I wanted to, I wanted to figure out what that looked like in Houston. And I was so happily surprised and overwhelmed by the number of resources and events and meetups and everyone I met was, it felt way less competitive and way more collaborative than the ecosystem in the bay area as well like like this is my idea and it's so great and i'm so awesome and i'm gonna be the next facebook and yeah instead it was like oh my gosh tell me about what you're working on like this is what i'm doing i think maybe i could help you this way or like you need to meet so and so have you heard of blah 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 i think it would be great if you talk to them and it's it just comes from a really genuine space um uh, getting back to what Kyle said about like finding that unique value proposition for the Houston ecosystem. I think everyone's on the same page of wanting it to be special and and um yeah, you don't want the the non-competes because you want a healthy dose of competition for ideas, but collaboration beyond that is super powerful and I've felt that with starting my own company. You asked music in Houston instead of Austin or Nashville like I think Houston's a really special place for musicians for a lot of the same reasons it's a special place for entrepreneurs because if you're good at what you do and are willing to work hard, you can actually make money in Austin, like the and Nashville. The the um, supply demand of musicians is way too skewed. You you get mm-hmm. asked to pay to play instead of being paid to play, and and same in the Bay Area. You might have a really great idea, but it, just, everyone goes there to launch their idea because it has this reputation of being where you go and and for good reason. But I think that's shifting and changing and, and for the right ideas, Houston's a better spot and it feels like there's more money to go around for the deserving ideas.
3: And seeing seeing what what Rice and what the Houston ecosystem is doing and standing up space like the Ion when that comes online next year, you know, being able to build density of the entrepreneurial community in a place and have surface area for serendipitous collisions between entrepreneurs, between entrepreneurs and investors, between entrepreneurs and Fortune 500 customers um, is a necessary ingredient. And I mean, I've been tracking this ION project for the last several years since the what is was it—the old Macy's building or whatever—kind of got acquired before the Ion was ever really a thing. And seeing what uh, what Jan and, um, and and Reggie, the provost at Rice, and, and Allison Thacker, who who helps head up the Rice uh, Management and Investment Company, seeing what their vision is for it as being that space to have collisions occur, they get it. That shows me that they get it, and and that you know you can have a million different. Co working spaces scattered around a city, and maybe the city the size and sprawl of Houston can and should have several different spots of of entrepreneurial density. But a, a place that is a next natural landing spot for entrepreneurs and ventures coming out of Rice to be able to go into, participate in accelerator programs, have office space, and be a part of a community again, instead of being a founder in a vacuum, that is. I mean, that's the secret sauce of what makes places like Cambridge and, and Massachusetts and Palo Alto and, and downtown SF and, and you know, L.A. and, and kind of the uh, Manhattan Beach areas like that's what makes it cook. And um, and it's exciting to see. I can't wait to see when when that space and the programs there come online and what we can do to help make sure that they're stocked to the gills with Rice Founders and, and Ventures
2: you You've talked some about Massachusetts. so when you when you look at a Massachusetts, you pretty much have boston. it's It's the core there. In Texas, we have Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio. How does Texas sort of work together when there is some competitive spirit among cities, you know, whether it's trying to draw companies or founders in or VC funds?
3: um that's a fantastic question um you know i much like sophie i grew up in the boston suburbs and so um, my my factory default setting is to always feel like the red-headed stepchild with a chip on my shoulder relative to a place like new york which was always viewed as the much bigger the much better the much more successful entrepreneurial ecosystem the reality is it's not zero sum and Some people, some investors, some companies might be more attracted to what's going on over in Austin, or they might be a better fit for the kind of uh, differentiated value proposition or the kind of industries that are thriving in a Dallas or a San Antonio. The beauty is the reality is like what each of those places are two and a half, three hours, maybe four drive away from one another.
4: For a Texan, that's like for a barely a drive. It's is a light snack.
3: (laughs) I I did the 17-hour drive from Boulder down to Houston through all of West Texas and Southern Colorado. I now understand the expanse of the state. But a four-hour drive is the same as from Boston to New York, right? And we saw a lot of folks get started in Boston but gravitate towards New York because they were doing ads or something that was consumer technology focused. And it was the right place for them in my mind, if we can help entrepreneurs get started at Rice and in Houston, and maybe they go to Austin, maybe they go to Dallas or San Antonio, that's great. We're keeping them local. They're still local enough that they can, you know, come on back to campus, come on back to Houston and contribute and participate to the growth of our ecosystem and and vice versa. And I think as we see VCs flee from the Bay Area to elsewhere, Texas has already been one of the great uh recipients of that kind of brain drain from the West Coast mm-hmm. with Joe Lonsdale and Elon Musk and a number of others already coming on over. Um, you know, if they want to be hiring for, you know, a- at crazy scale, UT is okay. If they want really high caliber talent you know, hopefully they can hop on a Hyperloop or a bullet train or just make the usual three and a half hour drive on over to Houston and tap into what we've got cooking at Rice. Because, um, you know, there's a reason why we're number one in entrepreneurship and have some of the most highly ranked engineering and MBA programs on the
4: planet. While we're on that train, like, I, I like to joke with my friends who are like, Oh, yeah, I've thought about moving to Texas. So uh, like, Austin seems really cool. I'm like, yeah, Austin's a suburb of San Francisco. Of course you think you'll like it. It's full (laughs) of Californians. And I think it's really powerful and says a lot about Texas as a state and like the value of places on business and, and small businesses and startups for making it an economically viable place to have a second office or shift your headquarters. And Austin is just what Californians knew, so they ended up there first. But like Kyle's saying with the, the unique value of Houston and Dallas and Austin each have their own. And I, I think one of the things that Houston has that I love is like a gritty hustle mm-hmm. um, that we, we, you'll see fewer so far, like second locations here and more things. There's plenty of startups starting in Austin as well, but that's like when Google start did their offices there. It's it's mostly sales and support, which is great. And you need to hire those, but those aren't like the most innovative departments within a company. Um and I try to like my friends who are excited about entrepreneurship and are like think they think awesome by default because those big names are there. I always encourage them to look at what kind of positions they're hiring for in those locations. Like, is it just kind of like the rinse and repeat operations of this teenage startup or is it truly somewhere where something innovative that you'd get to be a part of at this point
2: so you both talked about your northeastern
4: roots but where are your accents the boston accent first (laughs) of all i grew up two and a half hours from boston yes that is still in (laughs) massachusetts uh and then the boston accent is super specific to like south boston and it's it's also it's much more of a socioeconomic thing than a location thing i think is what people don't realize. So. I grew up in a fairly non-accented place and then I went out to school in in the Boston area and you don't pick up a, <laughs> a an accent while you're at Harvard. And then, um, yeah, probably similar for you, Kyle.
3: Yeah. I, I grew up 30, 30, 40 minutes outside the city in, um, what is effectively the, the sugar land, uh, relative to Boston. Um, uh so so no accent my parents are uh South African so I'm I'm first gen my accent's a, a mutt cuz I've just been moving around a million different places throughout uh throughout my life and um I'm just happy that I can authentically use y'all now because that is <laughs> hands down one of the best words in the English language it's, it's so it's
2: functional. Yeah. You can be authentic and say it now, right?
4: <laughs> That's right y'all. Uh do you have any boots yet? I don't. Okay. When you get here, we're going boot shopping. Well,
2: rodeo time, when the rodeo approaches, we'll, we'll need to get you outfitted.
4: <laughs> I have two
3: little girls and both of them are only too fired up about getting boots and hats and getting to ride horses like 24-7. So <laughs> uh, th- this is a very, a very good move for the whole family.
2: Well, it has been a pleasure talking with both of you. Uh, you just both have so much insight and interesting conversation. Uh, Kyle and Sophie, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share um, as we um, you know, look forward to a, a new year and hopefully um, putting the pandemic behind us?
4: Yeah, I think what I would say, if you're listening to this as an alumni or as someone considering rice, the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. And, and if um, you're thinking about getting involved as an alumni, know that as students, we love hearing from you, whether you're just starting your entrepreneurial journey or have something to share. Many of those programs I was in did have alumni in it just starting their venture several years out. And I loved kind of the the different exposure there. And if you're thinking about rice with an entrepreneurial mindset um, as something you're interested in getting out of an MBA, then definitely, definitely coming to the right spot.
3: If you're an alumni, uh, entrepreneur or not listening to this podcast please feel free to reach out my email is just Kyle.juda at rice.edu um, I'd love to help uh, connect you to the resources and the communities that we have to support alumni entrepreneurs to bring you into the classroom to help connect you to our our next generation of, of founders starting and coming off of the rice campus like Sophie um, please reach out. I, I love nothing more than hearing from alums who Want to come back who are fired up about entrepreneurship who um, who want to help out mentor support judge our competitions whatever it might be you know it takes a community to build a community and uh and we're lucky to have such a a great diverse and vibrant uh alum community from from rice business and from rice to to support sophie support our team at lily and support really the the next chapter and generation of entrepreneurs and and startups Coming from Rice, staying in Houston, consider this the gauntlet thrown down to any other Texas city or anywhere on the coasts, we're coming for you.
2: Thank you so much, Kyle Judah and Sophie Randolph. Thanks for joining us on I'll Have You Know.
0: Thanks so much. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drogliever, and Christine Dobbin.